Well, good morning. Family reunion. What, what does that bring to mind when you hear that phrase, family reunion? For some of you, it might bring to mind a wonderful times, seeing your cousins and grandparents and aunts and uncles and, and hot dogs and pie and cookies and potato salad or whatever your favorite food is. For some of you, family reunion might mean kind of an awkward time when you get together and you really don't know people that well because you're scattered all over the country, but you do it because it's important to your, your parents or or for some of you, it might conjure up ideas of feelings of, of tension, getting together and, and there's unresolved issues or lingering problems in relationships. For me, family reunions uh, were, were a good time. I, on my, my dad's side of the family, every so often we would uh, t- drive down US 36 east towards Seneca, Kansas. We didn't have relatives in Seneca, but we met in Seneca because the McHenrys were in this part of Kansas. Uh, but my my paternal grandmother, she had family uh, in in northwest and western Missouri. And so we would meet in Seneca at the at the, the, the city park uh, and uh, we'd get together. And my brother and I would always bring along things to do because uh, the other side of the family, they were much older than us. We didn't really know the cousins very well. Um, and so we would eat our food and then we'd hurry off and play catch with baseball or football or frisbee or whatever. But it wasn't bad. Uh, my mom's side of the family, uh, we would get together out in Colorado Springs or Denver. I remember going to my great-grandmother's house. Uh, I was fortunate to know her and have memories of her. And she lived in this, this little brick house, red brick house, with her, um, her sister who never married, great-aunt Virgie, uh, back when Colorado Springs was not much bigger than Salina, Kansas, which is hard to believe. And we would get together and see cousins and have a great time uh, in, in the mountains. Nancy's side of the family, now they really know how to do a family reunion. There's 10 kids in her family, uh, 30, great grand, 30 grandkids, and I don't know how many great-grandkids there are. Just, just Last time we had it, every, every five years they gather uh, at a lake resort in Minnesota or Wisconsin. Everybody shows up. You have talent shows. You do meals. You do water skiing. You catch fish. It's just a great old time, uh, a lot of fun to do. So for me, family reunions, by and large, have been positive experiences. Are you aware that that when we celebrate communion, it's, it's designed in, in, a, in a very real sense is to be a time of, 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 of a family reunion? When you think about it, uh, you have people from a variety of backgrounds and differences, and yet we're all one in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, what, that's the reality of what the scripture just says about us. And so when we get together and we celebrate communion, it's really a time of, of, of uniting with our family. We haven't seen each other for a few weeks or this or that. We get together and we share a meal. It's a family reunion. You know, we can get so used to communion. We do it the first Sunday of the month at the end of the service uh, that we can almost do it matter of factly or, or, or casually. We take the bread, we take the cup, we do the elements together, and then we, we have a benediction and then we leave. But in the early church, it truly was a time of, of connecting with family, brothers and sisters in Christ, people from a variety of backgrounds, you know, Jew, Roman, Greek, pagan, who used to be pagan, now believer, men, women, poor, uh, rich, slave, free, all gathering together to share a meal as they celebrated and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. His body broken for us, his blood shed for us. 
So they would get together. They would. It was kind of a potluck. The rich would bring their food. The poor would bring the best they could. They would spread out blankets or rugs in, in a home or a catacomb or maybe in a park under some trees. And they would share a meal. And at an appropriate time, one of the leaders of the church would would take some bread, which had been set aside for this purpose, and, and hold it in the air and, and give thanks and then break it and said, this is Christ's body broken for you. And that leader would then take a, a, a goblet or a, a pitcher of, of wine and hold it up and say, this is Christ's blood shed for your sins. And then the early church would share communion together. They would share testimonies. They would uh, share prayer requests. They would pray and they would sing songs and worship and then they would go back to their, their lives. You know, the early church was the one place in all the ancient world where all the barriers in society were truly broken down. I mean, go back and look at, at, at the, the, the Roman Empire. Study secular history and you'll discover the world was rigidly categorized and divided. You had free people, you had slaves, you had Roman citizens, you had non-Roman citizens, you had Greeks, you had Jews, you had barbarians, educated, ignorant, rich, poor. And the church was the one place where people of any background could come together and celebrate their unity in Jesus Christ. One church historian has written about these early Christian congregations this way. Within their own limits, they had solved almost by the way the social problem which baffled Rome and baffles Europe still. They had lifted woman to her rightful place, restored the dignity of labor, abolished beggary, and drawn the sting of slavery. And the secret of the revolution is that the selfishness of race and class was forgotten in, this Lord, in the supper of the Lord and a new basis for society found in love of the visible image of God in each person for whom Christ died. That's a beautiful, beautiful ideal. Unfortunately, this ideal had broken down at the church in Corinth. Paul had gotten wind of some things that were happening in the life of the church. And so his letters to the Corinthians and the first Corinthians, the second letter as well, are addressing some of these issues. But in first Corinthians, among many of the issues he was addressing, one of them has to do with what he hears in regards to their practice of the Lord's Supper. He writes about it in first Corinthians 11. Now, in the following instructions, he writes, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you are together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. And when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper, so he's questioning their motives. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. And one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What, do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. So Paul is astounded by what he hears. That there are divisions in the church. The thing that's supposed to bring people together, the Lord's Supper, is actually driving people apart. There are divisions and we read between the lines, it sounds like people would come early. Uh, maybe they were rich or maybe they were retired, I don't know. But they would come early with their food and they begin to eat and drink. And then the rest of the people would show up. You know, maybe the poor or the slaves who couldn't get off work early, they would show up with, with their food. Only to find that, that the other folks had eaten up everything they'd already brought. And some of them were tipsy, some of them were even drunk. And cliques began to develop. And it was no longer the family reunion 
where people, irrespective of class or life status, would gather together and celebrate and worship and share the Lord's Supper. Economic and social and racial divisions had taken over. And Paul declares, when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. Pretty strong rebuke. But after he rebukes them, he utters three specific warnings geared to the Corinthian church. And, and, and it applies to any church, really. Um, I remember as a kid hearing this and it kind of like, whoa, kind of put the fear of God in me. And, and in some ways it should. Right. We, we never should come to the table casually or, 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 or presumptuously. We are to come humbly, gratefully as an act of worship. So this, 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 this great custom that Jesus Christ had passed on, do this in remembrance of me when you get together, has now caused division. And so Paul warns us, do not let your differences destroy your worship. You know, we are, we are privileged to subordinate our own particular opinions and ideas for the welfare of the Christian community. This is not to say anything goes, of course. We are to have convictions about what we believe and why we believe it. But Paul says we must come together in worship and focus on the one who brings us together, Jesus Christ, as an act of worship and not let differences divide us. You know, we don't we don't get together and worship the schools that we attend or teams we root for. We don't get together and worship the American way. We're not supposed to do that. We're not to worship or celebrate our political ideologies and our economic viewpoints to the extent of division. The poor are not considered inferior to the wealthy. The wealthy are not considered superior to the poor. The, the male is not considered uh, to be considered superior to the female. And the female is not to be considered inferior to the male. The church is to be the place, the one place where anyone who repents of sin and puts their trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, they can come equally to the table, equal standing, equally loved, equally respected, to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. There's a Presbyterian pastor in uh, California who writes about a a time uh, uh, that was really sobering for him in community. He says, in the 1950s, in the 1950s, I led my first group to the Middle East. It was a Sunday morning at Cairo, and we entered the local Coptic Presbyterian Church a few blocks from our hotel. The service was led by a godly pastor, and it was Communion Sunday. Immediately following the sermon, we were invited to participate in the Lord's Supper. And I was stunned to see two of my tour members, preachers in a denomination I will not name, walk out. All eyes turned towards them. What was wrong? After the benediction, I went out in front of the church and talked with these two pastors. I asked them why they had left, and their response was, well, our denomination is not in fellowship with Presbyterians. We practice closed communion. He says their behavior came as a shock to me and to the Coptic believers. You know, we're not all the same. There are, we, we have differences of, of, of politics or, or sometimes theology or biblical convictions um, or economic theories or whatever, but, but in the church we are to come together in great unity. We are never to let our differences destroy our oneness in worship. You know, on, on my sabbatical, I shared a few stories last week, one that really uh, I think is connected to today. Um, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, always have been. I like reading his stuff. And, and um, so uh, I 
I spent a few days in the UK and I wanted to kind of follow some of you know his his journey. And so um, I, I was at Oxford and uh, and visited the church that he preached in. And there were some quotes of his sermons, which were really inspiring to me. And and um, and then I went to a, a place. Uh, there's this big monument to three men who were martyred, the Oxford martyrs who were who were martyred because of their refusal to compromise on the essentials of the gospel and the centrality of God's word. They were they were martyred there. And there was a. Uh, a cross in the middle of a, of a busy road that's kind of built uh, it, it's, it's in the road. It's like uh, bricks in the form of a cross. Uh, so, so I'm thinking about all this. I'm reflecting on it and you know, about about their faith. And and uh, and then I decided well, there was a church right next to the monument. I'm going to go in there and be a part of their service. So I went in. It was very different than what I'm used to. Uh, very, very high church, a lot of robes, a lot of things like that, a lot of liturgy. Um, you know, uh, but I engaged in it and it was very impactful for me because at the end, especially we, we shared communion uh, and, and, and I went forward and received communion and, and, and it was just very powerful for me to, to, to trace myself back to those martyrs who gave their life and, and the people in the church who were obviously people of faith and to be reminded that, that there are believers all over the world that when we take communion, we, we not only celebrate the oneness we have here in Salina, Kansas, we also celebrate the oneness we have with believers all over the world. So when we come to the table, we are to do so in unity and not let our differences destroy our worship. Warning number two Paul gives is he says, don't forget the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And then he goes on to, to describe it. And he talks about how Jesus took bread that he set aside. He broke it and said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, in, in communion, we talk about the real presence of Christ. Um, that is not just remembering, but in a very real sense, Jesus is here through his Holy Spirit in a very special and sacred way when we take the Lord's Supper. Because when we take communion, we can point to the bread, we can point to the cup and say, this is what he did for us. This is what we trust in, his sacrifice and his shed blood for us on the cross. And he did this for you and he did this for me. And we can look around the room and say, this is my family because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. So the Apostle Paul describes this and say we are to proclaim this until the Jesus Christ comes again. So it's it's a sermon without words. It's a very real, it's a sermon without words. When we take communion, it proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ until he comes again. Then Paul says, warning three, do not participate unworthily. Now, there are, are two kinds of unworthiness that he's speaking about here. When we come to the table, all are invited. We simply ask that if you come to the table, that you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that you are a person of faith in Jesus Christ. That's according to the scriptures. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have everything understood about Christian theology, but you are to be open to giving your life to Jesus Christ, to putting your trust in him and admitting your need for forgiveness. But there's a second kind of unworthiness that speaks to the, to the believer, and that is of unconfessed sin, deliberate, hidden, harbored sin. It's, it's the unworthiness of a person who has been born again by the Spirit of God, but comes to the Lord's Supper with a conscious awareness that there are things in their life that they are unwilling to work on, unwilling to submit 
to God that they will not let go of. It could be an unforgiving spirit. Somebody's hurt you. It could be immoral thoughts or actions. It could be someone who've, who've, who's wronged you in business or you've wronged them and you, and you haven't had the courage to make it right. It could be envy towards somebody. You can fill in the blank. But Paul gives strong warnings in 1 Corinthians to, to such an attitude, to harboring sin like that. He says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That's why before we take communion, we often will say, take a few moments in silence. Examine your heart and confess any sin to the Lord. And then Paul goes on, For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, without understanding what's going on here, Eat and drink judgment against themselves. And he says, for this reason, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if you but if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's tough teaching. Doesn't mean we have to be perfect when we come to the table. Doesn't mean we have to have everything resolved. But it does emphasize the importance of seeking a right relationship with God through a humble and repentant heart and a right relationship with others as well. Remember, the worthiness is not based on how good we've been or how bad we've been. The worthiness is based upon whether or not we've received God's grace and whether we are in a relationship with him and others seeking to honor him with our lives. You know, it's interesting, it's always kind of troubled me, but Paul warns us that some of the the negative experiences of our lives, the fractures, the divisions, the pain and happiness, some of those things, uh, even physical or emotional, spiritual issues at times, not all of them, grant you, but some of them come from results of taking the things of God lightly by the consequences of pursuing sin in our lives instead of pursuing God. That's a profound warning. And it should cause us to think seriously and reflectively before we come to the table. That's why we are to come humbly, not presumptuously, not matter-of-factly, not casually. Because what we celebrate and what we remember, what, the, what we point to, came at great cost to God the Father. And yet, though we are to come humbly, we can come confidently also. Because of God's amazing grace, his incredible compassion and mercy. And because of his great and precious promises and his faithfulness to us and for us. So welcome to the most wonderful family reunion of them all. The Lord's Supper. The gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ. From many different walks of life. But united in our one faith, the one spirit the one baptism, our one Lord Jesus Christ.